If you'd open your Bibles this morning, please, the book of Malachi, chapter 1. We will begin our study of this, what they call minor prophet. But they're called minor prophets not because they're not important, just because their books are so short. Isaiah wrote 66 chapters, Malachi 4. So that's why he's considered a minor prophet. But the first thing I want you to know about Malachi, if you're taking notes, is that Malachi was a member of the great synagogue, which included in addition to him Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra. These guys were great leaders at the time of the return of Judah from the Babylonian captivity. Say that all again, please. Malachi was a member of the great synagogue, along with Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra. These were important figures in the rebuilding of the temple and the reestablishment of the proper worship of God when the children of Judah returned from the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the synagogue system started when they returned from Babylon because they wanted to be able to gather together on Shabbat and study the scriptures together because they realized that the nation went into captivity because of sin and they went into captivity because of sin because the fathers were not teaching the children. So they came up with this idea of a synagogue where we'll gather together once a week on Shabbat and we'll open up the books and we'll study them together and we'll learn them and we will never ever disappoint God again. They had good intentions. Unfortunately, Malachi is here to tell us that, well, good intentions don't always come to pass. Little is known about the life of Malachi other than the fact that he wrote this book of prophecy and was a member of the great synagogue. The book of Malachi was written approximately a hundred years after Haggai and Zechariah wrote their books. So it was around 433 to 425 BCE. They're not exactly certain of what year, because unfortunately they didn't have calendars hanging on the wall to mark and say, this happened today. Malachi was the last prophet to write prophecy before the birth of Messiah. And he wrote it in Jerusalem near the temple. That is the rebuilt temple that they rebuilt after coming out of captivity in Babylon. It is widely believed though that Malachi was a priest. And one reason they believe Malachi was a priest is he takes a lot of his book here to rip the priests because they're not doing right. So Commentators say well, he certainly knows an awful lot about the priesthood and what they're supposed to do and how. And that makes him think he was probably a part of it. He's called the Hebrew Socrates. Socrates was a Greek philosopher, right, who wrote great thoughts. And they attribute Malachi's prophecies to that level of intellect. The purpose of the book, I always like to tell you the purpose, to deliver a stern rebuke against the people and particularly the priesthood that are leading the people astray. What are priests supposed to lead people to? To worship the true and living God. They're required to teach 
the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God to the people. But instead of leading the people to God, they're leading the people astray. So it is in large part a call to repentance. And also, that repentance is designed to prepare people for the coming of the Messianic era. That there are blessings coming. If the people had been ready 2,000 years ago and accepted Messiah at his first coming, there wouldn't have been a second coming, right? There would have been a kingdom established then, and there would have been peace, love, and harmony ever since. Of course, God knew that wasn't going to happen, but he certainly did everything in his power to deliver that message to the people. The major theme of the book of Malachi is God's love for Israel in spite of all the sins of the priests and the people. God judged the sin. He sent them into captivity. And then he brought them back and reestablished them in the land with great blessing. And for a while, the people were honoring God and walking in righteousness what happens to people over time? They start drifting away, don't they? Unfortunately so. All right, with that, let's start reading in the book of Malachi. Verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Just starting. Verse 1. Malachi 1.1. 1, 1. You've heard that word before, right? That word burden. We saw it most recently in Zechariah chapter 12. The Hebrew word for burden is masa. And it means that it is a prophecy that's heavy on the heart of the prophet to deliver. You know it's going to be one of judgment, one of rebuke, one of calling them back to righteousness. That's just included in the, the word Masa, which is Hebrew word 4853, for you guys who like to go look them up, see if you can learn more about them. Notice it says, the word of the Lord. What is the word of the Lord? John 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. So Messiah Yeshua, when he laments in Matthew chapter 23, how often I wanted to gather you together under my wings, but you were unwilling. He says that because he sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. But how could that be since Malachi is written before the birth of Messiah in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. That's right, Messiah has been with us from the beginning. Um, and it, it, when it says by Malachi, the Hebrew literally says by the hand of Malachi. Some of the writers like Paul didn't actually write his books. He dictated them and a secretary recorded it. This tells us Malachi didn't dictate to anybody. He wrote with his own hand. So there's no chance somebody got a word wrong, didn't understand how what, didn't understand your Georgia accent. So the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Hmm. Notice the tenses in verse 2 when it says, I have loved you, 
says the Lord. What kind of tenses have loved you? Perfect means completed action, past tense, done. I have loved you, says the Lord. So he's thinking back to something in history that the children of Israel should know very well. And the next line says, Yet you say, in what way have we loved have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? This starts the first of eight questions that the children of Israel are going to ask of God through a straw man. Hmm. Eight times this verse. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And God's going to answer the question here, starting in the middle of verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Who knows the answer to that? Was not only his brother, but what? His twin brother. Which means they were born at almost exactly the same moment. Had the same instructions, the same leading and teaching by the parents. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, first thing you've got to know about that statement is that I loved one and hated one doesn't mean love and hate as we think of it in English. It's a Hebrew idiom. It means God set Jacob above Esau. He treated him more specially, more highly. In what way have you loved us? And Jacob I have loved. When we get to that loved, we find an active participle, which means it was historically true and it's currently true and will continue always to be true. Think back to the book of Genesis. Which baby presented first? Esau. But then which one was delivered first? Jacob. So Jacob's name basically means supplanter. That Esau should have been the firstborn. Do we have that right? Jacob had him hooked by the the heel. So, yes, Esau is born first. He should have the firstborn blessing. That's right. My mind's just a little foggy this morning because of the painkillers. Don't worry. Okay. We're back on track. So God loves Israel. And God will continue to lift Israel above Esau. What's another name for Esau? Edom. Edom. And in verse 3, God's going to explain how he's treated Esau and Jacob differently. Verse 3 says, But Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Babylon conquered Edom in 581 BCE. Five years after they conquered Jerusalem. So when we study in Jeremiah as we are, we need to watch for the fact that God judges all the nations for not following his commandments. He doesn't just judge Israel. 
And that's something important to keep in mind. Another way to say, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, is who should have been the heir. It should have been Esau who had the blessing of the firstborn. Yet who did God make sure received it? Jacob. He preferred the younger over the elder. And Esau despised his birthright. So whenever you hear on the news that Israel stole Esau's birthright, it is not so. But there's another way or another reason, perhaps, that God did not prefer Esau over Jacob. And that is to look at Esau's descendants, one in particular. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 36. With whom will God have war until the time of the end? With Amalek. If we go to Genesis chapter 36, verse 12. It says, Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So Amalek is the grandson of Esau. And he's the one who is most angry about the fact that Esau did not receive the primogenitor rights, the rights of the blessing of the firstborn. And how did he express that disappointment and anger against Israel? He attacked the weak and the elderly in the rear. Didn't take on the mighty men, the soldiers. He goes after the sick, the elderly, the lame, etc. Let's go to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. Verses 8 to 16. You realize by the time we're in Exodus 17, we're just a little bit of time away from the Exodus, right? They've just come out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, And in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16, it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. What had Israel done to provoke it? Nothing. What's that? I was going to say, they just got through complaining to God about there no water. So yeah, Israel has complained against God, but God didn't cause Amalek to come up and do this. As occasionally God does cause an enemy to attack Israel because of their sin. That wasn't the case this particular time. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. What is that rod of God he's talking about? The stick that he parted the Red Sea with. The one that he threw down before Pharaoh became a snake and ate. Air Pharaoh's magician snakes. Remember that from the movie? Yeah. That really happened. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
If you were to take your songbook and put it in your left hand and hold it up over your head, how long would it take for that book to get heavy? Not very long. And how old is Moses? About 80 years old. So he has trouble holding that rod up for such a long period of time. But whenever he would let his arm come down to try and get some blood back in it, what would happen? Amalek would prevail. So verse 12, but Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. How that helps his arm, I'm not sure. But at least gave him a place to sit down. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. Now that's helpful. So even if he has trouble holding him up, they're supporting him. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book. What's a memorial? It's a remembering through retelling. God wants this story told over and over again. That Esau's grandson led an army to attack Israel. And God defended Israel. That's another way in which the Lord favored Jacob over Esau. He says, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out. What's mean utterly? Completely and totally. Blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Which means God's intention is that Amalek cease to exist. Verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner, Adonai Nisi. For he said, because the Lord is sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That is until their eventual total extermination. Numbers 24, has Amalek been completely eliminated yet? No, nope. all you have to do is look at the Gaza Strip today to know that. Numbers chapter 24. Verses 20 to 24. This is Balaam's prophecy that included prophecy about Amalek. Verse 20. Then he looked on Amalek and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations but shall be last until he perishes. Amalek was first among the nations. That means he was a great and powerful nation. Amalek's descendants were quite numerous, quite strong, and they were given really good land. Where will the children of Israel flee when they see the abomination of desolation? They'll go back to Petra, which is in the land of Amalek. And Esau. If you go and see that portion of Jordan today, there's very few people left in it. It really has been a decimated place. But the scripture goes on. Verse 21 Then he looked on the Kenites, and he took up his oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. 
How long until Asher carries you away captive? Then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coasts of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber. And so shall Amalek until he perishes. So Amalek is going to fight with the children of Israel until God finally eliminates them as a people. We're building to a point. Go to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse 17. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19, read like this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary. And he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around. In the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So when Israel comes into the land, they cross the Jordan River, they have a lot of enemies they have to fight. But once the land is settled and they're at peace, God says, now don't you forget to go take care of Amalek. If we go to Judges chapter 3, we're going to see that Amalek helps all the nations that Israel has to drive out of Canaan before they can settle down and consider it their own land. So go to Judges 3, verse 13. Let's start in verse 12 for context so we can set the time period straight in our minds. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Where's Moab? It's in Jordan today. Mm -hmm. There were three tribes, if you will, that settled what is today Jordan. We have the two descendants of Lot, Moab and Ammon. And then we have Esau's descendants. So it says, Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon. So Moab and Ammon are going to get together. And Amalek. So these are now the descendants of Lot as well as Esau. And they went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Look also in the same chapter. Well, let's just go on to chapter 6, verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites. And the people of the east would come up against them. So you're beginning to notice the pattern. Whenever somebody attacks Israel, 
Amalek's always there with them, right? Anyone who will fight against Israel, they will join forces with to help them bring home the victory. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Let me give you a chance to find it. First Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Samuel also said to Saul, who was Saul? The first king of Israel, and Samuel's the prophet. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Meaning what? Yep. God selected you to be king so that you could carry out his word. So listen and do. Right? Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? It's an end times prophecy, meaning dual fulfillment. Fulfilled in the days of Saul and ultimately fulfilled in the day of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them. The word utterly, as we discussed just a few minutes ago, means totally and completely. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. So God didn't tell him to destroy the Kenites, so he's given the Kenites fair warning to get out of the way. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agog, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Did God say keep the king alive? No. no, he did not. So Saul is disobeying the word of the Lord. Now let's read on, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. So we earlier read the prophecies that God said, I will utterly destroy Amalek. He gives Saul the mission, go utterly destroy Amalek. And Saul did what? Destroyed the things that were worthless and useless, but anything that was of value he brought back. So he did not follow the word of the Lord. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 27. It's going to come back to bite him in a big way. 
First Samuel chapter 27, verse 8. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. I wanted to bring us here because Agag, the king of the Amalekites, Samuel killed. And yet here, in the next generation, when David is king, he's still fighting with the Amalekites. So earlier in 1 Samuel, it made it look like he just spared the one person alive. Now we realize, no, he didn't. He saved much more than just the king. And now David is having to fight the Amalekites. Let's go to 2 Samuel. I want you to see where it bites him, where it bites Saul for not carrying out the word of God as he was commanded. 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Second Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Then the young man who told him, that is David, who told David, said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, as I happened by chance, you'll find out in a minute why I think that's a strange way for him to say it. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. He said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and it brought them here to my Lord. Samuel was ordered to destroy the Amalekites. And who killed Saul? One of the Amalekites that he failed to destroy. Hmm. Sin is consequences. What book of the Bible do we read each year at Purim? The book of Esther. And the main bad guy in Esther is Haman. Everybody go, boo. But he is the descendant of Agag, the Amalekite. The one that Saul left alive. Not only did he leave the king alive, he left the descendants alive. And here is a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite trying to destroy each and every one of the children of Israel to utterly blot out the remembrance of Israel. Let's go to Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. If you have the same Bible I do... And we'll find it on page 674. Because we're going to start in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. What's an Agagite? One who descends from Agag, the Amalekite. 
Hmm. Let's go to Psalm 83, verse 7. So Saul's disobedience almost cost the entire nation of Israel to be destroyed. But for God, God intervened. Wait. Yes, ma'am. Could you? I, I forgot what you said before when we were studying the book of Esther about Haman and who descended in the in World War II Nazis, that crowd that was in the person of that. Could you go over that again, please? You know, in Esther. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Let's talk about Psalm 83, verse 7, then we will address that question. The Psalm 83 war is about to take place. It is entirely possible that this war between Israel and Hamas, as it expands, will become the Psalm 83 war. And I want you to look at some of the combatants that tried to destroy Israel completely in the Psalm 83 war. So look at Psalm 83, verse 7. It says, Gibal, Ammon, and who? Amalek. So still in the world today, there are descendants of Amalek. In Gaza? In Gaza. Mm -hmm. It's not all the Palestinians that are attacking Israel. It's a certain subgroup. Yeah. So, Let's answer Penny's question. Let's turn back to the book of Esther. And there are things in the actual text of the Hebrew scrolls that don't always get brought into our English translations. One of those things is there are places in the Bible or in the Hebrew text of the Bible that letters will be larger or smaller than the other letters that surround it. So let me get over to Esther in this Bible. Here we go, Esther. Turn to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. And we'll start in verse 6. And in Shushan the citadel, Shushan was the capital of the Persian Empire, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Then verse 7 is also, also is going to start a list. Also, Parshandatha. You see that word? Underline the TH. That letter is smaller in size than all the letters around it. In the Hebrew text, yes. Like I said, in the English, you don't see any difference. Then Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta. In Parmashta, underline the SH. That's for the letter Sheen. Then it says Arisai, Aridai, and Vajazatha, underline the Z. That sound comes from a Zion. So the letters you underline were the TH, the SH, and the Z. If you add the value of those letters together in Hebrew, they total 107. When they put numbers like that for dates in the Bible, they don't put the, the millennium. 
So you have to add the five for 5707. 5707. That's 1946 in our current calendar. In 1946 was where we had the Nuremberg trials after World War II, where they put the Nazi war criminals on trial. And there were 11 of the Nazi war criminals to be hung. But how many were the sons of Haman that were hung? There were 10. But before they could carry out the hangings, Hermann Goering committed suicide. So they, on that particular day in 1946, hung this, the 10 major war criminals from the Nazi empire after the Nuremberg trials. Israel, in 1946, considered Germany to be the major area where the Amalekites were living. So by looking at the letters that are smaller than all the other letters around, it told us that there was going to be another hanging of the ten wicked sons in 1946. Does that answer your question there, um, Penny? Uh, absolutely. Thank you so okay. much. You're welcome. All right, let's go back to Malachi. We're still in Malachi chapter 1. Verse 4. Let me grab this other Bible again. Verse 4 says, even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Like I said, Amalek is the grandson of Edom, so his descendants can be considered Edom, just like Israel is considered Israel because of their forefather Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel. So Edom has said, even though we've been persecuted, we have lost battles, we've been taken into captivity, we will return and we will dominate. We will overshadow the children of Israel is what they're trying to say. We will take back our rightful place that was stolen from our ancestor. Of course, we know it wasn't stolen at all. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63 takes place at the return of Messiah for the Battle of Armageddon. If you remember, in Revelation chapter 12, the false Messiah has been indwelt by Satan and has a demonic fervor to destroy all the children of Israel. Right? Remember that? But God says he's going to protect them. When they go to Petra, they're in the land of Edom. So let's look at Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6, and see what's going to happen at that future time. Verse 1 says, Who is this who comes from Edom? That is, he has gone and had a great slaughter among the descendants of Amalek and Esau, and is now coming back toward the Temple Mount. 
with dyed garments from Bozrah. Bozrah was the capital city of Edom. And the word dyed garments is talking about blood red, like he's splattered with blood. Because he is, that's what it means. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And the one who's coming from Edom, from Basra, speaks then and says, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. This is Messiah who has gone to the area of Petra to defend the children of Israel from the false Messiah's onslaught where he wants to destroy them all. Verse 2, why is your apparel red? Why does it look like it's all bloody? And your garments like one who treads in the wine press. The wine press. What's the Hebrew word for a press? Got, as in Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. Verse 3 says, I have trodden the wine press alone. That is, he has destroyed the enemies that have come against Israel at Petra by himself. And from the peoples, no one was with me. No one in this earth is going to fight with Messiah. They're all going to fight against Messiah. So he says, I did it alone. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. That's why they're all red. And I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. You have redeemed has come. Keep a finger here and go back to the book of Luke, chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 is where we'll start. Oops, I have a question out there. Let me see what it is. Are you there? Verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What did he not read? What was the next line? And vengeance of? The day of vengeance of the Lord. Okay, so go back to Isaiah 63. Verse 4, for the day of vengeance. What's that? The day of vengeance of God. Yes. Interchangeable. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come, which means the words that he did not read back in Luke chapter 4 were not yet to be fulfilled. But when we come to Isaiah 63, to the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, they are being fulfilled. Verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, 
made them drunk in all my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Hmm. Don't you? Hmm. Kind of wish the people would repent, don't you? And not have to go through the slaughter that's coming. But let's go on to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 14. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 14. When you see this, that is God defending Jerusalem, you shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and his indignation to his enemies. How many categories do you see there? Just two. Do you want to be his servant or his enemy? You want to be a servant. But Amalek chose to be the enemy. Bad choice. Okay, let's go on in Malachi chapter 1 to verse 5. Wait a minute, I didn't finish verse 4. There's a whole lot more to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. How many times does the Lord of hosts appear in this book? This little short book of Malachi, many times. They may build, that is, Esau's descendants may rebuild, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. What did we just read in Isaiah 66 about the Lord's indignation? It's against his enemies, so where does that leave the Amalekites? as the enemies of God. That's the reason he will have war with Amalek until they're utterly completely destroyed because they will never cease warring against God and against God's people. Now verse 5, Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. At the end of Psalm 83 war, Israel expands out its borders. And that's one of the reasons it says here, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Beyond that, there will, through the tribulation period, be more and more of the nations that surround Israel that come to realize that the Lord truly is God and that they've been worshiping a false god. Verse 6 is a verse that we look at fairly often because it states a principle that is still true through this day. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. So who honors the master, both the son and the servant, but for different reasons? Why does the son honor his father? Out of love. Why does the servant honor his master? Out of fear. So the Lord says, Whether you treat me as father, and obey me out of love, 
or you treat me as your Lord and Master and obey me out of fear, you should do what? Obey me. He says, if then I am the Father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name. And you say, here's the second question. In what way have we despised your name? Before we get to the answer to that, let's break this question down a little more. Hmm. The word reverence here is equal to the word fear. If you go back and look at the word, it's actually mora-e. And God's point is this. If you think I'm a loving father, then be my loving children. And if you think I'm a harsh taskmaster, then obey me, because you know what happens to servants who disobey. So whether we love God or whether we fear God, we should be obedient to his name. And he's talking here specifically to the priesthood. Let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 6, verse 46. And see that this principle is expressed both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, both. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? You can see how this would be confusing. You call me Lord, he says, but you won't obey. Servants obey the master. Lord means master. If I'm your master, then obey me. Let's also look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. Deuteronomy 32, verse 6 makes the point that God is our Father. Says, do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Meaning, do you treat God this way? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? So when it says, is he not your father? That should take our minds right to Luke 6, 46. If he's our father, we need to be obedient. Let's look at Psalm 100. Psalm 100, verse 3. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God, and it is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. We belong to God, for he created us. Let's go to Isaiah 63. I know we were there a few minutes ago, but we're going to be farther down in the chapter for this cross-reference. Isaiah 63, verse 16. Isaiah 63, verse 16. 
doubtless you are our Father. Who's the you? It's the Lord. Though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. What does that mean, Redeemer from everlasting? Is that like the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world? It's not a plan B. It's not a plan B. You're absolutely right. Jeremiah 31 9. Jeremiah 31 9. Then they shall come with weeping, and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And then lastly on this issue, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. When they asked Messiah, teach us to pray, here's how he responded. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So if we pray that prayer, we are acknowledging that God is our Father. And if God is our Father, what do we owe him? Our love, honor, reverence. That's correct. So let's go back to Malachi chapter 1. A reminder, verse 6 begins, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Let's take one more Ibex trail. Now, I'll stay on topic. Okay. Malachi chapter 1, verse 7. You offer defiled food on my altar. Uh-oh, uh-oh. I told you he was going to rebuke the priests. Hmm. This is the answer to the question, in what way have we despised your name? What does defiled food mean? Not according to Torah, but even more than that means it's vile. It's offensive to God. You offer defiled food on my altar. But you say, here's the third question. In what way have we defiled you? His response by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Contemptible means vile, worthless, of no value, of no account. Oh my. How are we supposed to describe a proper sacrifice to God? Means to be without blemish, right? Let's go back and look. Exodus twelve five first. Exodus twelve five. 
I want you to keep these things in mind for when we read verse 8. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Exodus 12 describes the very first Passover celebrated by Israel while they're still in captivity. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. It has to be without blemish. Go now to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice to the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. So what's the requirement? Without blemish. Same chapter, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 10. If his offering is of the flocks, flocks refer to sheep and goats, not birds in the Bible, of the sheep or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. So we keep seeing that phrase, without blemish. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Start in verse 17. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Messiah as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifesting these last times for you. So why are all the sacrifices required to be without blemish? Because they picture Messiah, and Messiah is without blemish. So verse 8 tells us what kind of disgusting offerings the priests are allowing the people to bring. Verse 8 says, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, blind what? Blind lambs? They're bringing blind lambs. Is that without blemish? No. He says, Is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. How would the governor feel if you brought a sick lamb for his dinner? You know, that's what God's saying. Would he be pleased with you? And everybody would answer, no, of course not. Says, would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Now having read those verses, let's go back to Deuteronomy 15. And see how the children of Israel might have figured out that a blind or lame sheep is not one without blemish. Deuteronomy 15 beginning in verse 19. 
So Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 19. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there is a defect in it, if it is lame or blind, or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So why in the book of Malachi does God particularly point out you're offering sick, lame, and blind offerings? Because he very specifically and directly told them that those were not acceptable as an offering. Who's responsible for inspecting the sacrifice before it gets sacrificed? The priest. So they bring the animal to the priest. The priest has to inspect it and say, this one is without spot or blemish. So why are the people bringing lame or blind lambs and the priests are stamping them 100 USDA prime? The people want to keep the best for themselves, but what do you put in the pocket of the priest? Ah, yeah, a little bit of money, a little bit of bribe. Hey, overlook this defect, and you know, here's a little bit to get you through the day. We're going to find that that is so offensive to the Lord. Yeah, they act like they don't realize that God can tell a blind lamb from an... Yeah, that's what they're acting. You're right. Brother Wayne? Yes, ma'am. By them doing that, they're breaking the picture. And if, and we know back from uh, Moses when he broke the picture of striking the rock instead of speaking to it, that Moses wasn't able to go into the promised land. These people are, are breaking the picture of Messiah being uh, without blemish, without spot, by sending in these bad offerings, and they don't care. That's exactly so right. That's why we looked at First Peter and his statements that Messiah was without spot and blemish. If you're bringing sick and lame and blind lambs, what are you saying about the coming of Messiah? Are there, well, we won't go there. We'll go on to verse 9. But now, entreat God's favor. What does it mean to entreat God's favor? It means repent. Yeah, exactly. That he may be gracious to us. Does that mean God can't be gracious to us when we're deep in sin and, and spitting in his face? Yeah, it kind of does. That he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Is this the first time we've seen the Lord of hosts in this chapter? It is not. In fact... The word, the phrase, Lord of hosts, appears eight times in chapter 1, six times in chapter 2, eight times in chapter 3, and twice in chapter 4, which is really short, for a total of 24 times. What does that tell us? Is the book of Malachi relevant to us in these last days? Absolutely. Absolutely. Notice, again in verse 9, while this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? Will God answer your prayers? 
Will God protect and defend you while you're treating him this way? Let's go to Proverbs 28, verse 9. Proverbs 28, verse 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. God commanded, do not bring lambs that are blind or lame, for they are not acceptable at the altar. Have these people turned away their ear from hearing the law? They have. And the problem is, this is the regathered Israel after the Babylonian captivity. After they've come back into the land and said, we understand, we repent, we're not going to do that anymore. We see the levels to which they have sunk in such a short period of time. And of course we need to look what's the New Testament equivalent of Proverbs 28.9. It's John 9.31. John 9.31. John 9.31 says, Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. So if we apply that back into Malachi chapter 1 verse 9, the overall point the verse 9 is making is, is this the way you entreat God's favor? Is this the way you ask for defense and blessing? Is this the way you ask for prosperity? You bring the sick and the lame and the blind lambs to be sacrificed where you keep the good for yourself? Verse 10 goes on. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors? The you here refers to the priests and the Levites, particularly the priests. The priests and the Levites, that is the clan from Levi, were responsible for maintaining and operating the temple. And if there's an enemy coming, they should shut the gates to keep them out, right? And God's saying, who is there even among you who has shut the doors? That is to keep these invalid offerings from coming into the temple. From defiling the temple of God. I guess that's the best word I can think of to describe it as defiling. And God goes on, who is there even among you who has shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? So God says, when you bring these sick, lame, blind lambs and offer them to me, it's a vain act. You're not going to get the results you're looking for. You're not going to be in God's good graces and standing. So he says, where is the one who would shut the door to keep him out? It, it takes us back to uh, Phineas, really. Who is Phineas? Phineas was the son of Aaron, one of the priests, just like these are priests, who when the people started to participate in the pagan sacrifices and chase the pagan prostitutes, actually took out his spear and ended the practice, right? And for that, God gave him much credit. Um, 
He goes on to say in Malachi chapter 1 verse 10, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Again, Malachi is addressing the priests. The priests don't have enough regard for God to say, no, you need to bring a proper acceptable sacrifice. To them, anything will do, which means what have they lost? Their faith. They've lost the love. They've lost the fervor. Instead of standing up for God, they're doing the opposite of what God commanded. Let's go back to a text that was written about 300 years before Malachi, and that's to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. I want us to look at it because every one of these priests is responsible for teaching the word of God to the people. So they all should know what took place in Isaiah chapter 1 about 300 years ago. We'll start in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Wait a minute, that's not possible. Sodom was destroyed long ago. Yeah, but he's talking about Jerusalem, who acts like Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. That's what's happening in Malachi. They're bringing futile sacrifices, those that God will not accept. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity. What's iniquity? Lawlessness and the sacred meeting. He says, if you will not follow my commandments, statutes, and judgments, then don't bring me the lambs, the bulls, and the rams for offerings. Just don't do it. Because I won't accept it. Verse 14 says, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They're a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Which means what? means repent. Turn back to God and become obedient and walk in righteousness. Put away the evil of your doings. From before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What caused God to stop accepting the sacrifices, offerings, new moons, and festivals from Israel? Their iniquity. Their refusal 
to repent and turn back to God. See, I have one out here. Did the priests realize they were breaking the picture, even though they had to realize they were being disobedient? The answer is no, they didn't necessarily know they were breaking the picture. Just as Moses did not necessarily know that when he struck the rock the second time, he was breaking the picture. It's oftentimes the case that we do not realize the consequences of our sin. But sin has consequences, whether we mean it to have consequences or whether we don't. Yes, ma'am. And it says, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, 24 times. So as you say, these prophecies of old have an application here in the last days. And that's exactly where I wanted to go next, and that is, how will it happen here in the last days? Nobody's bringing blind lambs to the temple at the moment. Why? Because there is no temple. But are the people living righteously, obeying God's commandments? No. And yet they're entreating God for blessings and for protection, for deliverance, and for all kinds of, of blessings that the Lord can give. So what lesson does Malachi say? If you, will not re- if you will not follow God's word, will he bless you? The answer is no. And that's where we get the ultimate end times application. As more and more denominations and churches turn away from God and do things that he considers an outright abomination, and yet they still expect God to hear their prayers and answer, are they likely to be answered and blessed? No. Yes, sir. Your son just last night said, if you mention, quote, Jesus is Jewish, and everything thereafter, he will not talk to you for four more months. He doesn't want to hear it, don't want to talk about it. Did the Lord give us a parable about the four kinds of fields, four kinds of, it's really four kinds of hearts. Only one out of the four is able to take the seed and make it grow and produce fruit. The other three all fail. And it breaks our hearts when it's our loved ones, doesn't it? Our children, our family members, our good friends that you know are on the road to the lake of fire and they will not even talk about it. Is that what's happening with you? Happens to many, many of us. For people simply won't sit down and say, this is what the Bible says. They simply say, you're wrong. Well, where does it say? I don't, mm, not, mm, not going there, just you're wrong. Okay. So let's pick up with the Bible. And go back to verse 11. It is heartbreaking though. I agree with you 100%. Verse 11 says, For from the rising of the sun, that means to the east, even to its going down, that's to the west, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. 
So from one end of the world to the other, God's name will be great among the Gentiles. Has that happened yet? No. So we're talking about something quite future. It says, In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So twice in verse 11 he says that his name will be great among the nations. The word Gentiles and the word nations are interchangeable. Hebrew word for nations is goyim. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 56. Because Israel refuses to follow God's commandments, even after the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom and the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom, God says, you know, eventually the gospel is going to go to the Gentile world. And did it? Yes, it did. But let's look at Isaiah chapter 56. We'll read verses 1 through 2 and then 6 through 8. So starting with Isaiah 56, verse 1 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I'm not making it up, thus said the Lord, keep justice. What is that word keep? It's to guard. It's a command, isn't it? It's a commandment from God. Guard justice. Protect it. Make sure justice prevails. And do righteousness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. Are you walking in righteousness or lawlessness? If you're walking in the commandments of God out of faith and love, you're walking in righteousness. If you're breaking God's commandments, you're walking in lawlessness. And God commands, keep justice and do righteousness, for my Yeshua is about to come. That's literally what the Hebrew says. My Yeshua is about to come. My salvation. And my righteousness to be revealed. Was Messiah ever referred to as salvation? Yeah, that's what Yeshua means. Was he ever described as my righteousness? Adonai Zedekinu. That's twice in the book of Jeremiah. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it. One reason I like to study Biblical Hebrew with as many of you as can do it is in English it looks like the word man in both places means the same thing and it doesn't. The first word man there in verse 2 is the Hebrew word enosh which refers specifically to the Jewish men. The second one, the son of man, that word man is Adam or Adam. So what verse 2 is doing by using Enosh and Adam says, it doesn't matter if you are born Jew or Gentile. This applies to everybody. How many of you in here do not descend from Adam? You all do. You know that, right? You're looking at me like, we're not monkeys. We descend from Adam, of course. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays, hold on, who keeps from defiling what? The Sabbath. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. Any evil refers to breaking any of God's commandments. But which one does he call out specifically? The Sabbath. Let's go over to verse 6. Which is specifically about people who are not born Jewish. They were born in the pagan Gentile world. But want to worship the true and living God. 
Also the sons of the foreigner. That word foreigner is nekar. Spell it N-E-K-A-R. Nekar. There are different words for Gentiles. Goy just is a generic Gentile. Ger is a sojourner, a Gentile who's come into Israel for some reason, which would include the Ger HaShaar, those that came in to worship the true and living God. This word Nekar simply means Johnny Q. Pagan. He was out in the Gentile world worshiping pagan idols, but he's repented. Who joined themselves to the Lord to serve him. The word to serve him means to be obedient to him. And to love the name of the Lord. To be his servants. Remember Isaiah 66. Servants or enemies. They want to be the servants of God. It says everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath. And holds fast my covenant. So not only do they keep all the commandments. But God specifically calls out which one? The Sabbath, which is the sign that we worship the true and living God according to Exodus 31, verse 12 and following. It's the Sabbath. That's the wedding ring. Even them I bring to my holy mountain. What's the mountain in prophecy? It's a kingdom. So these from the Gentile world he will bring to the Messianic kingdom. I make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the rebuilt temple that Messiah will rule and reign from. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. You mean if somebody like, oh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who's a Gentile pagan who has no interest in worshiping God, brings a sacrifice, God doesn't like it? Yeah, God didn't like it. What kind of sacrifice did he bring? A pig. Hmm. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This has not been fulfilled yet, I hope you realize. There has been no point in time when Gentiles were welcome to come into the temple and to worship before God, to pray before God, to sacrifice before God, because the man-made rules and regulations prohibited it. Never did God prohibit it. That was man. That was the Jewish rules, saying we're better than everybody else. And Ephesians chapter 2 says, no, no. If you have been saved by faith, washed clean in Messiah's shed blood, doesn't matter if you're born a Jew or a Gentile. You're now one in Messiah. Okay. Verse 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. That's referring to the Gentiles being brought in. What did God command in Matthew 28? Take the message to the nations. Let's go look. Matthew 28. We call it the Great Commission. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Disciples mean students. Of all the nations, that means the Gentiles. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe. I don't really like that word, observe. What does it really mean? To do all these things. That is all of God's commandments. That I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Amen. 
So prior to that, the gospel message didn't go out to the world. And you want to know something else? It didn't happen when God told them this in Matthew 28 either. That's why Acts chapter 10 is in the scripture. God had to come get a hold of Peter and say, you're not listening, son. I said, take the gospel where? To all nations. But up to that point, up to Acts chapter 10, they wouldn't go to the Gentile world. They wouldn't discuss the scriptures with the Gentile world. So they were ignoring the commandment of God here. Go to John chapter 10, verse 16. Isaiah 56 is the Old Testament statement that God will bring the Gentiles into his kingdom. But John chapter 10 is the New Testament confirmation. Oops, I got two questions out there. Let me see what they are. Yeah? Okay. John chapter 10, verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. That refers to the Gentile nations. Them also I must bring. That's why he gives the great commission of Matthew chapter 28. And they will hear my voice. What is the Hebrew word for obey? It's Shema, which is the same word as hear. So when it says they will hear my voice, it means they will obey me. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. If the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers make up one flock, who's the one shepherd? That's Messiah. How many paths can one flock follow one shepherd at a time? Just one. One way. And whose way will Messiah lead us? In God's way. Whenever you see the phrase, each man did which was right in his own eyes, it's never said as a good thing. Go to Zechariah 14, 16. Does the Bible say we will keep the feasts and festivals whether we're Jewish or Gentile? It most certainly does. Zechariah 14, 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, that is at Armageddon, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So all the Gentile nations around the world in the Messianic kingdom are going to come up to Jerusalem to worship our Lord and Savior, our Messiah Yeshua, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also called the Feast of All Nations. Let's look at Psalm 72. Psalm 72, starting in verse 5. How many psalms did David write? He wrote a lot. But this one was written by Solomon. Verse 5 says, They shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure. 
throughout all generations. So how long are we supposed to obey God? Forever. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Who's going to have dominion? The Lord is, our Messiah Yeshua. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. Yeah, they're going to die. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Have we reached that point yet? No, that's still to come. But it's not very far off in the future, I don't think. Psalm 86. Starting in verse 8. Psalm 86, verses 8 to 10. Among the gods, that is the pagan idols, there is none like you, O Lord. Nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. When it says, all nations whom you've made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, is that talking about a subset of people? Or is it talking about all people? All people. This one I particularly wanted to do, even though it's not quite in order. Psalm 22. Right before Messiah died, he cried out, Psalm 22, verse 1, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, to bring the disciples' minds back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a prophecy of the crucifixion of Messiah written a thousand years before he was born. Look at verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me, referring to the Roman soldiers. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, referring to the Jews screaming, crucify him, crucify him. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. David wrote that a thousand years before the events happened. But I need us to go to verse 27. I just want you to know it's the same chapter. Verse 27 says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations, referring to the Gentiles, shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. So the same psalm that tells us Messiah will be crucified, tells us that he will return to rule and reign over all nations of the world. That was written about 3,000 years ago, and it's about to be fulfilled. What other religions are there in the world that have great books of prophecy that describe things in detail 3,000 years before they happen? There aren't any that I know of. 
Let's go to Revelation chapter 15. Verses 3 to 4. Revelation 15, verses 3 to 4. Let's see if you recognize these, because it is the Song of Moses. Revelation 15, 3 says, They sing the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb, saying... Have you thought about that verse? It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Did Messiah come to overthrow Moses? To do away with the writings of Moses? No. They're singing together. Saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. And all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Who's going to come and worship before the Lord? All nations. So whether we read it from the Old Testament or the New Testament, they both tell us the same thing. That all nations will eventually worship the Lord our God. Now, verse 12. So let's go back to Malachi chapter 1, verse 12. There's some play on words in verse 12 that I want you to see. It says, but you profane it. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And its fruit, its food, is contemptible. These are the priests saying that the table of the Lord is defiled. I don't like that word defiled, really. But let me tell you why it's there. Look first at the word profane, the third word in verse 12. That's machalalim. Machalalim. Ignore the maim for a moment. What you're left with is the root is halal. Daniel mentioned this last night. Halal. What is the Hebrew word for praise? Halal. You almost can't tell the difference in, in the speech. A chait is closed. And a hay has a little opening at the top to give it that softer huh sound like a letter H. So if you close that little gap at the top, you get a CH sound that's rasping like kh, like bach. So halal, profane, halal, praise. And then when you get to that next word, defiled, that is in Hebrew, ga'al. Everybody say ga'al. The word for redeem is ga'al. So God is using a play on words. We should be praising him. We should be looking at him as our redeemer. And instead they're looking at him as being profaned 
and defiled. That's the way they're treating him, God says. So verse 12, but you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. So he's explaining this is why they're allowing the blemished sacrifices that God won't even accept because they disdain his altar. They have no respect for God. And the priests are supposed to, leading the, be, supposed to be leading the people to God, and instead, they're leading them away. Verse 13 says, You also say, Oh, what a weariness! And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Oh my, not just the lame and the sick, but they're stealing the sheep from other people to bring them to offer them to God. Can you imagine? Mm. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. So God says, not only are you breaking my commandment not to bring lame or blind sheep, but you're also stealing sheep. Did God ever say, thou shalt not steal? Yes. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. But this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So when the priests are sacrificing these blemished and unqualified sacrifices because they despise God's own altar and table, are they showing God love or not? They are not. And God says, do you really think I should accept those kind of sacrifices and offerings? And I think every one of us would say, no, no, the Lord is right. He's righteous. Verse 14 of Malachi 1. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow. So he takes a vow. He makes a vow in the name of God that he's going to bring this lamb to the temple as an offering and a sacrifice. That's not bad, but read the next word. But... Sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So he, vow, he vows falsely. He, he, when he brings this sickly, unqualified sacrifice, leaving the qualified, good, healthy, without spot or blemish male in his flock, he's making a false vow that he did not have a proper sacrifice. That reminds me of Acts chapter 5. Does it you? Go to Acts chapter 5. Verse 1. Acts chapter 5 verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession as they sold some land. 
And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So a great fear came upon all those who heard these things. As you read through, you don't know what the problem is yet. Verse 6, And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Is she lying? She's lying. See, that was the problem. That's what her husband did too. He sold the land for, let's say, 100 shekels, and he brings 20 shekels and says, this is what I got for the land. I'm giving it all to you. And she's doing the same. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. So going back to Malachi 1 to make sure we understand why these two instances are related. The one who takes a vow, when he brings the sickly lamb that's unqualified to the priest, he says to the priest, this is all I have. I don't have anything else. I don't have a qualified land. This is the best I can do. And they're lying. So again, verse 14. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. And the Lord is a finish, says, for I am a great king. Would you do this to your governor? No, you wouldn't. Then why would you do something like that to the Lord? You'd only do something like that to the Lord if you lacked what? Faith, if you lacked true faith. You don't have love for God or you wouldn't be trying to lie to him like this. I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. What do the nations have to do with this? When they see Israel treating God like he's unimportant it doesn't cause the Gentile nations to want to worship God does it because when you treat God this way you don't get God's blessings you get God's judgments and what God wants the world to see is the blessings that come from worshiping him not the tragedies that can befall you when you don't chapter 2 verse 1 and now, O priest, this commandment is for you. That's not what the Hebrew says, but it's close. It says, O now, priest, this commandment is to you. So this is not to the common people. This is not to the king. This is not to anybody but the priests. What God is about to say. The people should know better. But the people should know better because the priests are supposed to teach them better. So when the priests are teaching the people to lie, cheat, and steal, 
and to treat God as if he's irrelevant or unimportant, God says, I'm going to hold you responsible for what you did. What's that verse in the New Testament? Who does God hold to a higher standard? The teachers. Yeah, it says not all of you should be teachers because you get held to a higher standard. So verse 1, and now, O priest, this commandment is to you. If you will not hear, I mean, if you will not obey me in this, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, upon the priests. And I will curse your blessings, that is, instead of the blessings that you would have received had you been good and faithful and honest priests in my service, instead you're going to get the curse. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Hmm. The word here requires obedience. And God says, take it and put it upon your heart. And to give glory to God, we do that through obedience. And our witness that we have to the rest of the world. Verse 3 says, Behold, I will rebuke your descendants. No, no, that's wrong. Cross out the word descendants and put seed. The problem in translation sometimes come when a word has more than one meaning. And the word here is zera, which can mean descendants, but in this case is not what God's talking about. I'll tell you why in a minute. Behold, I will make your seed rebuked. In other words, the seeds that you plant won't grow. You're going to have famine. You're going to get hungry. And I'll spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts. That God says those unqualified blemish sacrifices I'm going to rub in your face. And one will take you away with it. So, verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your descendants, should tell us that God will cause your seeds not to sprout. Therefore, while the rest of the nation's crops are doing fine, that which the priests plant, they're going to die. They're not going to produce fruit. Let's go back to Ezekiel 18. Start in verse 14. In Ezekiel 18, verses 14 to 17, we read these words. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, meaning what? The child sees the sins of the father and says, uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. Mm-mm. Who has not eaten on the mountains, that's at the places of pagan worship, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase. 
but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. Those verses tell us that the translators, when they use the word descendants in Malachi, use the wrong translation of Zerah. Does God punish children for the sins of the father that they don't continue in? The answer is no. Same chapter, Ezekiel 18, go to verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So that's how we can be confident that the word should have been, I will rebuke your seed meaning that it's not going to come up and they're going to, have, going to suffer hunger. And in verse 3, like I said, that refuse refers to the invalid offerings God's going to rub in their face, meaning they're going to regret it. Verse 4. Uh-oh, look at the time. We'll have to pick up with verse 4 next time. So, Lord willing, we'll pick up next week in Malachi chapter 2, verse 4.